Please turn to me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Today we're in Hebrews, and then next week we'll begin going through the wonderful epistle of First Thessalonians. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. But first for today, Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. The book of Hebrews is all about the absolute sufficiency and superiority of Christ over every other thing. Christ is better. (laughs) And by grace through faith in Him, God the Son, we receive a complete, final, and once and for all pardon of all our sin, past, present, and future. How good is that? Through Christ alone. See, in Him alone is life, joy, peace, true peace, forgiveness, hope, and eternal glory in Christ alone, our superior one who rescues all who believe from wrath. And the writer of Hebrews wants to make this clear to his recipients because some of them weren't even saved, and then others who were saved were wavering, and he's showing them how foolish it is to waver. Christ, 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 he's saying, nothing else but Christ Because everything else is rubbish. Everything else is meaningless. Everything else is chasing after the wind. All the things in the old pointed to Christ. And now that He has come, we are to be all about Christ. The old things were the shadows, but Jesus is the reality. So worship Christ alone. That's what He's saying to us. What a word. Today the writer has some encouragement for us. Let's look. Hebrews 10.32 But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven." We'll stop here for now, and here in today's passage we see three imperatives to observe, important, vital imperatives for us to observe. Before we look at those imperatives, it's good to note that our passage for today exhorts us to have enduring faith in times of hardship, to have enduring faith in times of persecution. So instead of quitting, instead of slipping back to our old and empty and easy religion like some of the Hebrews were doing, the call is to keep going no matter what, even in the face of persecution. Now as Christians, the Bible tells us that we will indeed face persecution of some form because we are Christians, right? Because we follow Christ. And if they killed him, then hey, they're going to hate us too. See, But for the most part, our persecution here in America is minimal compared to the persecution that many Christians have faced throughout the ages and also in other places around the world even today. I mean, I've never been beaten, tortured, or thrown into prison because of my faith. I've never had my property confiscated or my family torn away from me because I confessed Christ as Lord. On top of that, Christianity in America, generally speaking, is shallow and weak. Much of Christianity today emphasizes the benefits of the faith only, but never the cost. We're told, God offers a great plan for your life. Trust in Jesus and He will help you overcome all your problems. He'll make you healthy and wealthy and happy. He'll help you become the best version of you. 
And with Jesus at your side, you'll enjoy life to the fullest and have a great and, uh, and a very successful life. One said, Jesus is marketed as a solution to everything. From weight loss, to success in business, <clears throat> to having a happy marriage. The sales pitch is that receiving Christ will bring you the greatest happiness in this life. But getting persecuted and losing all your material possessions and maybe even losing your life, that doesn't really harmonize with today's popular message. See, most today have signed up for the prosperity plan, not for the persecution plan. So if we encounter difficult trials, we get angry at God. And we might even deride if, if that's the way He's going to treat me, then I'm not going to follow Him anymore. Hardship, persecution, and suffering aren't in the deal that I signed up for. Well, then guess what? What you signed up for isn't biblical Christianity. <laughs> I mean, come on. The faith is often referred to as a fight and as a war. And we saw that in the book of Ephesians. Many passages tell us to expect trials because of our faith. And biblically, the abundant life that Jesus promised has nothing to do with a trouble-free life, but rather with having His joy in the midst of all that tribulation. Jesus even told us that the requirements for following Him was to deny yourself and to take up your cross daily. And denial isn't always fun, nor is a cross. See, a cross wasn't a minor irritant to your life, no. A cross was an instrument of a slow, torturous, painful death. Biblical Christianity has never been easy, and it's always demanded that Jesus come first. And true Christians gladly surrender to this because we love Him. Right? And because He's abundantly worthy. Not so some of the original recipients of this letter. And not so for many today. How sad. How incredibly sad. Our passage comes on the heels of the strong warning against apostasy, against falling back. And here the writer encourages these readers that he believes that they will not be like those who fall back, like those who turn away. May that be true of all of us here today. So first, recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, and here the writer is taking them back. He's saying, remember, 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 because it's good to remember. I believe that the warning against apostasy that the writer previously addressed was to those directed, directed to those who were in the church but who weren't truly saved. But now this passage for today shifts and it gives us some encouragement for those who were in the church and who are indeed genuinely saved. That's us, right? Hopefully that's, that's us here. So previously there was a warning, but now, here today, is an encouragement. And I think we could use that today. Look, the former days refers to the time just after these Hebrew Christians had been saved. The writer wants them to look back and to recall how God had worked in their lives during that time in spite of some very difficult circumstances. Remember, he's saying, so that you don't forget. Look back so that you have renewed energy to continue forward. Recall so that you don't become like the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation and lose your first love for Christ along with your passion and zeal to keep honoring Him with conviction and with singleness of mind in your daily actions. His point is this. 
You did so well then, so you can hang in there now and in the future when more persecution hits you. You did it before, you can do it again for the glory of God. So, so remember that. Remember that. It's good to do that, isn't it? It's good. Now look, if you're a Christian, God has illuminated you. Photizo in the Greek, which means to shine, to give light to, to cause to be known. Unbelievers are described in Scripture as being spiritually blind, unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But God changes all of that. Anyone? God changes all of that, and He commands a light to shine out of the darkness. As the Apostle Paul put it, He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. In other words, He graciously opened up our blind eyes and caused us to see the truth that saves. Or, as we saw in Ephesians, we were dead, but He made us alive, praise Him. And now we see the truth. My good works are indeed filthy rags. We see that now. I am indeed a wretched sinner, and I am desperate for Jesus to save me. We understand that now. I can't do it on my own. Right? The Word of God is true, and Jesus is truly God who came down and died on a cross and then rose up from the dead, and it's by grace through faith in Him alone that I can be saved. I see it now. I I didn't see it before, but now I see it. Before, I thought that my sincerity got me into heaven. Before, I thought that I was good enough on my own to get to heaven. Before, I thought that all religions were the same. Before, I did things my way, and I thought that all was well. What incredible lies. But now I see that. Thank you, Lord, for awakening me. Thank you, Lord, for illuminating me. And that's absolutely right. God did that. And once your spiritually blind eyes have been opened up, and you surrender to Jesus in repentant faith, man, everything changes. Anyone? Everything, everything changes. Different eyes, see. Different heart. Different nature. And here the writer says, remember? It's good to remember those first days. Woe to any of us who have forgotten that. Remember your first love for Jesus when He saved you? Remember? The love that you had for your Savior? When He forgave you? Of all your sin? Hey, this is the first time I've preached in English in four weeks, so I'm a little emotional. Do you remember? Remember the joy you felt when God so graciously blotted out all your transgressions that condemned you to eternity in hell? You remember? Remember the happy hour when the Lord appeared to you, bleeding on a cross, saying, Come and follow me and be saved? From the wrath to come, you remember that? Yes, Lord, I believe. Result, you're saved forever. And it's a love that surpasses all other loves. It's a love that compels the true Christian to be willing to give up all to follow the Lord. It's a love that drives you to prayer. It's a love that drives you to worship. It's a love that drives you to the Word. It's a love that drives you to service where you just say, I gladly give up all for, for His name, the one who died To make me His. That's good to remember. So that we don't forget. 
Now, the writer wants these Hebrew Christians to recall all that, but here he wants them to recall five distinct facts in particular. First, back then, remember that you endured a great struggle. Remember that, he says, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, and that ups the ante even more. See, not long after many of these Hebrew Christians were saved, they faced some real and intense suffering for their faith. Real suffering for these brand new believers. Struggle is from the Greek word athleo, from which we get our English word athletics, which back then spoke of a contest, a a combat, a, a battle, and a great conflict. The word great in front of the word struggle gives emphasis to the conflict that they were facing because of their faith. The picture here is of a Hard-fought athletic contest against Satan who was battling for their souls. Note that they were suffering um, because of their faith. See, it was very specific. It it wasn't the the general suffering that we all face as human beings living on this sinful planet. It, It wasn't that. This suffering, this pain, this adversity, this trial was specifically because of their newfound faith in Christ. And that's the reality for all of us as Christians, right? That we will not only have to deal with general sufferings that everyone faces in life, but that we in Christ will have added sufferings because of our allegiance to Jesus. It's harder for us in Christ. In 1 Peter 4.12, he writes, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. No, expect trials. When the apostle was saved, our Lord said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And suffering in some form for the Lord's sake is on the calendar of every genuine believer, both in the early church and for us today. Now, sometimes those trials ebb and flow, and in some places the persecution is more intense than in other places, but it's a reality nonetheless. We in Christ have added sufferings. That's a biblical fact. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Come on. Should any of us be surprised when the world mocks Christians? Should any of us be surprised when the world hates Christians? Should any of us be surprised when the world acts out against Christians and, and the truth that we proclaim and believe? The world lies under the sway of the wicked one, and we are children of the holy one. You see the issue there? So Christians who are really living for the glory of God will become an obvious target of the enemy, which usually results in some form of persecution. Satan doesn't like God's people who are shining brightly for the glory of God. He never is like that. And suffering for our faith in some form shouldn't shock any of us. So, question. Are you beginning to love spending time with Him? Eating up His precious Word, growing in the grace and growing in the knowledge of our amazing Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, are you? If you are, then gird up your mind for some struggle because of your faith. Be it mockery or lies about you or a loss of a job because you won't compromise, a loss of some friends because you won't join in with them in their sin or something else. Hey, don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it. And remember that enduring through suffering has eternal value as it refines us and gives us opportunities, greater opportunities to lift Christ high and and as it prepares us better for glory. The call is to endure like the Hebrews did. The word for endure means to remain under. Not simply with 
uh, resignation, but with a vibrant hope. See, the idea of enduring is not just a grin and bear it, no, but to remain under trials in such a way that we glorify God as we learn the lessons that trials are meant to teach us, instead of always seeking ways to get out from under the trials and be be relieved from the pressures. We say, no, I trust the Lord. I know that He knows what He's doing. I, I look unto Him and I will focus on Him in the midst, even in the midst of this pain. Now yes, you can pray for your trial to go away. Please do so. But you should also pray for strength in case God calls you to see it through to the end. And sometimes He wants you to endure through that pain and through that trial to the end. And we are called to trust Him with that. But again, our call is to endure. More on that later. What else does the writer of Hebrews want them to recall this? That they were made a spectacle both by reproaches and by tribulation. Have you ever been made a spectacle of because of your faith in Christ? A spectacle. Here we see that when these people first came to Christ, it had a dramatic impact on them from the very beginning. When I first started preaching, I was in a town for five years and The town was filled with people who came out of a Catholic background, but who didn't know the true Christ. Over the years, we had many people come to our church, hear the gospel, and seemingly surrender to Christ in repentant, saving faith. But some would come up to a certain point, and then they would turn away. Why'd they do that? Here's why. Because if they became Christians, then their Catholic family would be seriously upset and disappointed with them and maybe even disowned them. And sadly, there were some who chose to be at peace with their family over being at peace with the Lord God Almighty. But these Hebrew Christians, you know, they came to Christ knowing that they would suffer and knowing that it came with a very steep price and they still came to Christ. The word for spectacle is from the Greek word theatrizo, theater. And it means to bring up on the stage, and in this context, to expose them to contempt, humiliation, and derision. Note that common criminals were sometimes exposed and they were punished in the theater. And so it seems that some of these Hebrew Christians were actually imprisoned for their faith. The word reproaches means to chastise, to revile, and to scorn. Talking about unjust reproach, that was them. These new Christians also endured tribulations. Tribulations means a pressing together. Talking about oppression, affliction, pain, and deep distress. And all this came because of their newfound faith in Christ. So they gladly came to Christ in repentant faith. And while they're filled with hope and peace and joy on the inside, guess what? They're now facing sufferings and reproaches and tribulations from the outside. So so why put up with that? Why, why, why not just blend in with the crowd? Why not just become a Christian and tell no one about it? Why not just hide your faith and keep on living the same old way you always lived before? Why not? <coughs> Here's why. Because Christians can't. We can't do that because their new focus wasn't on pleasing people, but on pleasing God. And those who have been rescued from sin by the crucified and risen Savior, we are now compelled by love for Him. And to live so as to please Him, even 
when there's a cost involved, even when there's a serious cost involved. We love Him, right? Therefore, we must glorify Him. The idea you're making a spectacle of me because of my faith. You're putting me up front and on stage in order to mock me and to ridicule me. But guess what? I don't perform for you. The only audience I care about is the audience of one, the Lord God Almighty. And He's the only one that I'm seeking to please in light of who He is and in light of what He's so graciously done for me. So go ahead. Go ahead. It doesn't really matter because I'm here to please the audience of one. So these new Christians paid a high price for their faith, but to them it was well worth it all. To them it was worth enduring through at all costs. They got it, see. They knew that Jesus minus everything is everything. But everything without Jesus is nothing. They got it. Jesus was worth it to them. What about you? What about me? What else did they were, were, were they called to recall? How they were companions of those who were so treated, as verse 34 says. You had compassion on me and my chains. Here we learn a little bit about the writer of Hebrews. What do we learn? That he was imprisoned at one time, as many Christians back then were. But look, these Hebrew Christians showed great boldness by being friends with imprisoned Christians and by showing compassion on (coughs) others who were suffering for their faith. That came at great risk, but still they did it because nothing could stop them from truly living out their faith. See, those who remained free showed sympathy to the prisoners and they publicly identified themselves in solidarity with those prisoners. That means that they probably visited them and brought food and clothing to them since the jails at that time didn't supply such things. Companions is the word koinonia, And it describes those who participate with others in some enterprise or or uh, matter of joint concern. In this case, the joint enterprise of suffering. Suffering. They they made sure that, that no one suffered alone. What boldness. What love. I mean, think about it. These new Christians were not only persecuted because they had renounced Judaism and embraced Christianity, but they were persecuted because they became companions of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who were being persecuted. And that's something that they walked into. I mean, this wasn't something that just happened naturally to them. No, this was something that they chose. One said, here, their new faith is manifest in the reader's For in sharing in the suffering, they transcend the normal human tendency to be passive and to avoid. What gallantry and honor. I stand with my brothers and sisters here. If you insult them, you insult me. Side by side with locked arms, they chose to face persecution together. That's that's incredible. They weren't running from it. They were running into it. That's amazing. And this was done because they were filled with godly compassion for the writer of Hebrews who was in chains, yes, and then for the other Christians who were suffering around them. See, they couldn't be indifferent to the pains of their fellow believers. But they locked arms with them in true agape Christian love. And just as Jesus was filled with compassion, so too will us, his followers, be filled with compassion. How could we not be, right? How could we not be? The word compassion in verse 34 means to be affected by, to sympathize with, to suffer with, to feel for, and to be compassionate toward. And 
So we see that their compassion led to action even when it came with a price. Hey, visiting a friend in uh, prison at that time came with a real degree of danger, but even still, they did it. I mean, do we let pressure cause us to not do what God calls us to do? Do we? No, 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 we don't. We do it anyway, right? Christians are not cold or indifferent, but we are compassionate and sympathetic to those who are hurting (coughs) both our brothers and sisters in Christ and those who aren't Christians. We weep with those who weep and we mourn with those who mourn and we act on that because, again, we're filled with the agape love of God. And look, indifference to the pain of others is not a Christian quality. Not at all. No, these Hebrew Christians were the real deal, and it showed in how they treated others, especially their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who were suffering, even though they themselves were suffering. They, they, they walked into it. They walked into greater suffering, you see, for the glory of God. Fourth thing that they were called to recall, how they joyfully accepted the plundering of goods. Did you hear that? They joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of goods. They had their property plundered because of their faith in Christ, but they didn't just grimly endure the loss of their property. No, they accepted that joyfully. That's incredible. These new believers had such profound joy in knowing Christ that they, they sang their praises to God as the mob hauled off their belongings and leveled their houses. Plundered means to seize upon with force. It speaks of violence and of unjust seizure of your property. And this is what their uh, compassion for the other suffering Christians has led to, their own growing suffering and plundering and loss. Good thing it's not about this life, right? Good thing it's not about this life, nor about the fading things of this life. It's a good thing. So look, as their property's being violently taken away and plundered, these Christians joyfully accepted it from God as if it was a favor and honor conferred upon them that they should be thought worthy to suffer reproach for the name of Christ. Joy is an attitude which is cheerful and glad. The Bible tells us that joy is a gift of God, a fruit of His Spirit, and is independent of circumstances. And that's why these Hebrew Christians could be joyful even when their property was being plundered. And that's why all Christians can be joyful in the midst of suffering and hardship and trial and life. As 1 Peter 4.13 says, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So not only is joy possible for us in Christ, it's expected and it's commanded. For when a Christian truly comprehends that his or her real possessions aren't temporary and earthly, but they are eternal and heavenly, it shows itself in a willingness to part with the earthly, knowing that the heavenly is guaranteed. And that reality brings joy in the midst of all of it, because we know that that has eternal value. Because we know that in that, God is pleased. This pain is making me more like Christ. This plundering is giving glory to God because I'm joyful in the midst of it and I'm showing others around me that Christ is worth it. 
God is using this trial for his glory. Joy. Note that joy doesn't mean that we put on our happy faces and deny that we're hurting. It doesn't mean that. It simply means this. That when believers suffer and grieve, they don't grieve as those who don't have any hope. See, our response to trials should distinguish us from the world. Underneath the grief and the tears, there should be the confidence that God is in control. He will cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning, Psalm 30, verse 5. Those who sow in tears, they shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him, Psalm 126, 5 through 6. So we in Christ can and should respond to our trials and sufferings with joy because we know the whole story, right? We know that God is good. We know that God is in control, that God has all of this figured out, that God is working, that God is moving even through this trial and this pain in my life. And this trial is producing something good as a result, something eternally good, even though it's painful. This godly attitude in the midst of suffering and plundering is utterly against the way humans are by nature. We love safety. We love comfort. We love ease and fun and lots of possessions and and money and free time to do what we want to do. And if we get that, then we rejoice. But if we don't get that, what do we do? We complain and we whine, right? But here, these new Hebrew Christians are people who rejoice when they lose possessions and share in suffering. How? Well, we've seen some of it, but the next phrase gives us the heart and foundation of their joy. Fifth fact to recall, you knew, here it is, you knew that you had an enduring possession in heaven. And there it is. Knowing that you had a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven. So why were they joyful in the midst of suffering and plundering? Because they knew. Right? They knew that they had treasure in heaven where neither wrath nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Matthew 6.20 They knew that Jesus had gone to prepare a place for them to dwell with Him forever, and that He will be coming again to take them with Him to be there in that place. John 14.2-3 They knew. They knew that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. They knew the truth. Knowing here <clears throat> means knowing by experience. Here, it refers to the knowledge that the Christian is assured of an eternal reward, which serves to encourage faithful endurance in the face of strong opposition and vigorous persecution. Look, personal sufferings and public shame, sympathy with others who suffer, and loss of possessions are bearable when they're set against the prospect of the imperishable, undefiled, heavenly possessions awaiting those of us who are faithful. And of course, we know that the ultimate heavenly possession is the person of the Lord Jesus Himself. I mean, come on. Heaven is going to be amazing. Anybody? Anybody looking forward to going to heaven? Heaven is going to be amazing, but even better than anything else, (coughs) we will see Jesus there. And we will be with Him forever. And that is much better than anything here, and this is much more abiding. 
Better means to be of a higher status, prominence, and rank. And it's telling us that what lies ahead for us in Christ is much better than anything down here. Understatement? And when we keep that in view, it'll then give us strength to endure. Abiding means lasting. And here we see that what lies ahead for us in in glory as Christians is going to last forever. And not only that, it's going to amaze us forever and ever and ever. Keith Green sang a song, I can't wait to get to heaven. And boy, was he right. Anybody? Boy, was he right. In Hebrews chapter 4, the word rest was used for the Israelites entering into the promised land where they finally had rest from their enemies. The writer of Hebrews expands on the idea of rest, and when he applies it to us in Christ, rest happens when we come to Christ in saving faith. See, as Christians, we enter God's rest when we are saved, the, the spiritual promised land, and that rest will be fully realized when we stand in glory in the future. One said, rest for the Christian means no more self-effort as far as salvation is concerned. It means an end of trying to please God by our feeble, fleshly works. <clears throat> God's perfect rest is a rest of free grace. Amen to that. So look, <clears throat> we come to Him in saving faith. And there we find rest for our souls, right? We find true peace. We find eternal satisfaction in Christ. We have this rest right now in Christ because we know that all the work has been done by Christ to save our lost souls. And our eternal home right now is a reality. That said, our eternal rest as Christians will be fully realized later on in glory. Note that this doesn't mean that All we're going to be doing in glory is resting, (coughs) sleeping, and taking naps. Doesn't mean that. Rest is talking about an end of one thing and the beginning of another. See, for us in Christ, our eternal rest will mean an end of battling sin and battling this flesh. An end of suffering, an end of pain, an end of sad tears, an end of loss, an end of struggling, an end of death. <clears throat> and it'll be, it'll be the beginning of eternal glory, joy, praise, feasting, and passionate worship with Him forever. So our ultimate rest will be the end of our life of battling here and the beginning of glory there. Talking about our much better an enduring possession in heaven. Sound good? Because guess what? It's coming. It's coming. And it's better than anything that this world can offer, and it lasts longer than anything that this world has. And look, it's every Christian's possession, our greatest possession, that we will soon fully realize. And this is the thing that motivated these Hebrew Christians to be faithful even in the face of suffering. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Don't give in. The best is yet to come. Suffering for Him lasts forever. He sees it. He knows. And He rewards it. Stay focused. Because what lies ahead? God, heaven, your eternal reward. They're all worth the pain and and much, much, much more pain. And enduring through it all, being faithful through it all, honoring God through it all, is well worth all the pain and it's well worth all the turmoil. Anyone? J.C. Ryle said... Let us settle it then in our minds for one thing, that the future happiness of those who are saved is eternal. 
However little we may understand it, it's something that will have no end. It'll never cease, never grow old, never decay, and never die. God will fill us with His joy in His presence, with eternal pleasures at His right hand. Once they arrive in paradise, the saints of God will never, ever leave that wonderful place. Their inheritance can never perish, spoil, or fade. They will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Their warfare is finished Their fight is over. Their work is done. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. They're traveling on towards an eternal glory that far outweighs all their struggles, toward a home which will never be broken up, a meeting without parting, a family gathering without a separation, a day without night. Faith will be swallowed up in sight and hope in certainty. They will see as they have been seen and know as they have been known, and they will be with the Lord forever. Right? And that's good motivation to endure, right? I know. I mean, He saved me. He loves me. He forgave me of all my sin. He lives in me and He helps me. And I know what lies ahead for me because He promised it to me. Heaven forever. Glory forever. Him forever. And so I am joyful even when the life is hard because I have Him. And hey, this is all temporary and fading anyhow. <laughs> but heaven is eternal And only fools will trade the temporary for the eternal. Don't be a fool. No wonder the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, takes his Christian readers back to that time when they first got saved. Now that things are hard again, it's good for them to remember the past in order to encourage them along today. Look at the encouragement in the next few verses, verses 35 through 39. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Here we see the second imperative from this passage, which is this, to endure. The writer starts off verse 35 by reminding the readers to not cast away their confidence, which has great reward. Confidence in what? Confidence in Christ. Confidence means boldness and encouragement and courage, and it refers to maintaining and testifying to a settled assurance of the truth of the gospel in the face of persecution and trial. I'm not, it's this, it's saying this, I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to compromise. I believe God. I trust God. I I belong to God. And I'm not trading Him for a few fading earthly pleasures or treasures because it's not remotely worth it. Here, the writer's imploring them to stay confident, to stay bold, to not give in under the pressure and give Jesus a bad name because compromise always gives Jesus a bad name along with hurting us in the process. Don't do it. It has eternal value. Staying, staying steadfast and standing firm. Don't give in. And like the writer of Hebrews, we too need to warn and encourage each other to not throw away our confidence, to not veer, to not compromise, to not make excuses for sin, to not love the world, to not bow down to the pressures to give in, to not fear the terrible prospect of not cherishing the promises of God above the promises of sin. We need to encourage each other to especially focus on the preciousness of God's sure promises that lie ahead. Look ahead. Look ahead. Look ahead. 
Look at, live for that which lies ahead. To what's better and to what's abiding, don't give in. Look what it says, for it has great reward. In context, there will be a payment of wages for trusting and obeying. So the next time we contemplate committing a sin, we need to recall that not only does it cost to disobey, but on the positive side, it pays to obey. And both actions have both temporal and eternal consequences. Look at verse 36. You have need of endurance, for after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. So the call is to endure. God's will refers to His moral commandments and priorities as revealed in His Word. Under the pressure of trial, it's easy to justify compromise, but we don't care about what's easy. We care about pleasing God, and so we don't give in, we endure. The word endurance portrays a picture of steadfastly and unflinchingly bearing up under a heavy load. And it describes the quality of character that doesn't allow one to surrender to circumstances or to succumb under trial. The picture is that of constancy and endurance with a forward look to glory and the ability to focus on what is beyond the current circumstances. Focus. 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 This is temporary. But soon I'll be in glory. Stay focused. Don't give in. Soon you'll be in heaven. Stand strong. One said, Endurance is courageous gallantry which accepts suffering and hardship and turns them into grace and glory. And that's what wise Christians do. Lord, help us. Endure, stay strong, keep going. What about you? Imperative number three, don't draw back. In verses 37 and 38, the writer combines a quote from Isaiah 26, 20 through 21 with another from Habakkuk 2.4, but he inverts the order of the Habakkuk quote, and then on top of that, he quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament instead of the Hebrew, so it looks a little jumbled up to us. The main difference is that the Hebrew says proud, or one who is puffed up, while the Greek says one who draws back. That said, the person who draws back or shrinks back is precisely the person who's puffed up with self-sufficiency and is therefore blind to the need of faithful and patient endurance. So really it's saying the same thing. The warning here, all that to say this, the warning is clear, don't draw back. That's the point. Don't draw back. For yet in a little while, he who's coming will come and will not tarry. Notice that the little while is from God's perspective of time, not from our perspective. The original quote in Isaiah was written to a people, to the people of Judah who were being threatened by hostile enemies. Here, God is encouraging them to hold on for a little while longer until he, until he delivers them and judges their enemies. The point here is clear that this present life is a little while in comparison to the eternal joys of heaven. So, Hold on and don't give up or give in. Have an eternal perspective, which is the true perspective. And then look, verse 38. Because we've been justified, declared righteous by grace through faith in Christ alone, saved, forgiven, cleansed of all our sin, look, what do we do? We live by faith. That's it. Many people live by their emotions, but emotions don't last. We are the ones who live by faith, trust, and daily dependence on our good God. Our aim is to please Him, so we don't draw back, 
Because God has no pleasure in those who draw back. No, we are those who press on. So look, genuine faith perseveres through difficult trials, but false believers are those who shrink back to perdition, verse 39, talking about destruction, about hell. We are not those who draw back to perdition. Amen? That should be a, we should yell that. Amen? We are not those who draw back to perdition. No, we are those who believe to the saving of the soul. True believers, and, and thus we endure, and we persevere, and we continue on in Him to the very end. Not perfectly, but lovingly and faithfully. We fall, yes, but we get back up. We fail, yes, but we repent and we continue on. We don't draw back. We can't. How could we? Draw back to what? An empty, wasted life? In, in context of the Hebrews, back to a, a useless, empty faith that leads to hell? Leave the truth that, for a lie that condemns us forever? No, we, we don't draw back. No, we pursue. Him. 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 His glory, His pleasure. Him. That lasts, that matters, that pleases Him, that has eternal value. And we're not fools here. We know that He's all that matters, so we endure even through great pain. We continue on. We pursue even when it's rough. Some are have it really rough right now. Keep going. Because the end, the end is worth it. The verdict, spend your time and your money and your life as if God's promises in the gospel are true, because they are. Remember how God worked in your life in the past when you first came to faith in Christ. Live in the same way now because you know that in Christ you have a better and lasting possession than you ever had on earth. And focus on doing God's will in the present, especially when trials tempt you to compromise. And then look ahead to God's promises for the future, see? So, walk in faith, honor Him, endure, press on, redeem the time, and be excited about what lies ahead for you in Christ, and live like you believe it. Our rest will soon come. I can't wait. I can't wait. Until then, keep on for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be those who don't shrink back. But to those who press on, who endure, who overcome, who keep going to the very, very end, battling, pursuing, seeking to glorify you with our fading lives. May this sermon be an encouragement to many today. Help us to not be discouraged, but to be encouraged, the best is yet to come, and help us to encourage one another in these truths for your glory. We love you. We thank you. Bless us as we go out. May we praise you and be filled with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.